Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Grace and Mercy, Return of the Goddess. The talk was given by Mary Angelon Young on October 9th, 2021, via Zoom. Angelon is a workshop leader, editor, and author of As It Is, Under the Punai Tree, The Bowel Tradition, Caught in the Beloved's Petticoats, Enlightened Duality with Lee Lozowick, Krishna's Heretic Lovers, and The Art of Contemplation. In this talk, she tells mythological stories of the divine feminine, both East and West, shedding light on their relevance in our lives today. She spoke during the fall season, at the time when the nine-day Durga Navaratri celebration is traditionally held in India that involves singing to the archetypal feminine aspects of the divine. Angelon refers to her teacher, Lee Lazowick, to his teacher, the Indian master Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, and to Ma Devaki, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar's disciple, who is an inspiration for many on the path. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Angelon Young. I was inspired to do this talk this time of year. This is a great time to be recognizing the return of the goddess. And in so many different mythic traditions, the goddess is present and prevalent. She's returning this time of year quite often. She's always there. Of course, there's countless stories and myths of her that go with every possible season. But at this time in India, she's being worshipped all over India as Durga, the great goddess who is going to vanquish demonic forces of aggression and illusion and so on on the planet Earth and in the cosmos. So the goddess has been becoming more and more present for me as time has gone on. I've always been very, very deeply attracted to the goddess and the goddess traditions. I mean, going back to the 70s, actually, and I've done a lot of pilgrimage, and maybe I'll talk about some of that later to various goddess shrines in India and in Europe. I've loved her for a long time, so I'm very happy to be talking about her. Once again, welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. So I want to start with why we consider these mythological stories, the religious myths, and why they're important to us. Of course, it's symbolic language, and it's clothing those cosmic forces, the divine forces of life. All of the myths are like this, as personifications of cosmic energy. I can remember Madhavaki saying to me once, because of the images of the gods and the goddesses and the worship of those images, and she said, but in fact, it's very difficult for us to relate directly with cosmic force and cosmic energy because we are in human form. It helps us so much to just understand or gain wisdom and gain perspective those are my words now, 
with what's going on in life with these divine forces that are moving everything around. So we put them in human form, we personify them, we anthropomorphize them so that we can relate directly with them, understanding that they are personifications of cosmic energy, of divine energy, of life force, of archetypes. And this is tremendously helpful to us. Part of how we can understand how it's helpful to us is that we're all in a story, the story of our lives, the narrative of our lives. And we get caught up in that. And we get caught up in the illusion and the confusion and just the play of it, the craziness of it, the speed of it, the uh, complexity of it. And especially in modern times, life is getting more complex all the time in our current era. So when the waves of the storm, you know, we're crossing the ocean of samsara in our little boat, when the waves get so high that we are threatened to be inundated or drowned, or the flames get so high, we feel we're going to be burned to death. And in some ways we are. How will we make the leap from the perspective of our ego, which is a natural perspective, and we have to have it. It's just our window on the world. That's where our local story, the small story is happening, the narrative of our lives. So how will we make the leap from that level of understanding of perspective, actually, to a big picture, to a cosmic picture, even to the view of Dharma. And myth helps us to do this tremendously. Because when we really embrace the mythic perspective or these divine myths, these stories, they come to live in us and they are alive with living divine archetypes, like primal life force. And they're communicating with us at deep levels and they're informing us and liberating us in ways that we don't even know that that's happening because it's bypassing the logical mind. And it's lifting us, it's uplifting and lifting us out of our local story, our narrative of our day-to-day struggle into a much bigger reality. So let's talk about Durga a little bit. In the Indian tradition, Durga Navaratri started on October the 7th, three days ago. Now we're into the third day of nine days. It depends on which tradition you're part of and which myth, because with most of these mythic stories, there's lots of different versions that's true in the West and in indigenous myths, and it's true in the Indian myths as well. It depends on which story you're reading or who the teller is. So here's one version. And I like this version. I like both of them. We're going to look at two different ones. Nine days in which the goddess Durga is worshipped, but actually it's Parvati, the cosmic force and power of Lord Shiva. So I'm going to take a little quick digression here. And I'm going to tell you uh, something that most of you already know, but let's just go over it quickly. So in the Hindu tradition, the divine absolute is understood as being related with these three primal forces of life, creation, preservation, and destruction. They're called the gunas, and they inform everything. Now, in the Celtic tradition, we have the same thing showing up, force of three, creation, preservation, and destruction. And it's called the trishkol or the trishkalian. And it's drawn as a symbol. It's a circle. And inside the circle, there are three moving forces that are moving together like this, sunwise, and they're eternally moving, and they represent a constant change 
of reality, the one thing that we can count on, constant change and permanence. So the Trishkalian, there's this beautiful mythic image in the Celtic tradition, and of course, a whole fabulous pantheon of gods and goddesses. In the Hindu tradition, there's the gunas. So the gunas then evolve into the three primary deities of the Hindu tradition, Brahma, the creator, with his shakti, his power, his force, because without his shakti, he can do nothing. He's powerless. His shakti, saraswati, that's creation. And then there's preservation, Vishnu, whose shakti is Lakshmi. And then there's Shiva, whose shakti, whose power and force is Parvati. So the nine nights of Durga are about Parvati's journey and the different manifestations that she has and the different ways that she participates with humans in creation and the different games that she plays, how she's helping us out and her grace and mercy, which of course, everything that she does for us is grace and mercy. It's the grace and mercy of the goddess. So she starts out on day one and she's It's kind of a long story, and I'm going to make it short. It's a very long story, in fact, which is wonderfully told in the Hindu epic, the the Shiva Purana. And you can see it. It's been put into a kind of a Bollywood format. It's called Mahadev. It's wonderful. It's hours and hours and hours of the myth of Shiva and Parvati. So Parvati starts out, she's trying to get Lord Shiva's attention, and it's very important that she does and that he turns toward her because, of course, he's been in Kailash up in some frozen mountain cave for millions of years and eons just meditating. And it's very important that she gets his attention so that they can have union because their union is going to produce many other things, including their son, Kartikeya, who's the only being who can kill a certain demon. So Shiva and Parvati, all the gods, actually, Vishnu and Shiva are always killing demons. So the nine nights of Durga start out with Parvati taking her form as this beautiful mother goddess and getting the attention of Shiva so that they can have union. And as the nights progress, she takes nine different forms. And at the end of that, she becomes Kali Durga. And she vanquishes the demons, some very important demons that are ravaging the universe. So that's one version of the myth. In India, each night there's a different prayer and offering to the specific form of Parvati as Durga, as she's evolving and manifesting in these different cosmic personifications. Another story, which I love very much, they don't negate each other. They coexist keeping in mind that on another level, everything in the myth, everything in the story is a part of us as human beings. It has a cosmic dimension and it also has a personal dimension for us. So in this version, in the beginning, somewhere in time or timelessness, these two demons are ravaging the cosmos and threatening the balance of light and dark. And these demons They have created so much difficulty and have wreaked so much havoc and are so aggressive and are so threatening the balance of light and dark that the three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, come together and they say, what are we going to do about them? 
what are we going to do about these demons? They're about to kill all of life. They're going to destroy everything. And the problem is, is that none of the three of us can kill them because eons ago, they practiced so hard that they received a boon from Lord Shiva. And that boon was that no man or God can kill them. That was the boon that they received for their intense practice. So Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva put their heads together and they go, there's only one thing we can do, and that is to combine our Adi Shaktis, our primordial Shaktis, into one being. And when that is done, then she will be able to kill these two demons. And so they do that. And of course, as myths go, now she's taken the form of Durga, but actually they just call her forth from the depths of reality because she already exists because she actually created all of them because she's the creatrix. See, I want to read a little something to you. Probably some of you have this book. It's a wonderful book. It's called Kali, The Feminine Force. It's been around. I've had this book for probably 35 years. Ajit Mukherjee. The great goddess Durga was born from the energies of the male divinities when the gods became impotent in the long drawn out battle with the Asuras. All the energies of the gods united and became supernova, throwing out flames in all directions. Then that unique light pervading the three worlds with its luster combined into one and became a female form. The Devi projected an overwhelming omnipotence. The three-eyed goddess was adorned with the crescent moon. Her multiple arms held auspicious weapons and emblems, jewels and ornaments, garments and utensils, garlands and rosaries of beads, all offered by the gods. With her golden body blazing with the splendor of a thousand suns, seated on her lion or tiger vehicle, Durga is one of the most spectacular of all personifications of cosmic energy. A tremendous power is poised, ready for the grim battle to wipe out demonic forces. The Asuras, whose exaggerated ego sense is destroying the balance of the universe and whose sole purpose is to dominate and control. It is the universal war between knowledge and ignorance, truth and falsehood, the oppressor and the oppressed. The world shook and the seas trembled as the goddess engaged the great demon Mahasasura and his hosts in fierce battle, creating her own female battalions with her sighs breathed during the fighting. In grace and mercy of the breath of the goddess. When the battle was over, the Devi had destroyed the demon's army, symbolic of disruptive aggression. So every fall, she gets worshipped again. She is always present. But once a year, we can give nine days of our lives to bringing her into our awareness, allowing her to come to life in us. I love these stories, and I love the reality of what this energy is for us as human beings and how we can tap into it within ourselves. Because the world is so so out of balance. Everything is threatened right now by the forces of ignorance and greed and aggression. And so what can we do? 
What can we do in the face of all of that? The goddess brings us to work with ourselves in a really direct way because she is us and we are her. At any moment, she can breathe on us and bring us to life. She teaches us through our humanity. She's the full embodiment of spiritual ideals and aspirations, which for those of us who have been on the path for a long time, this possibility of of embodying what we've learned, the ongoing years of surrender as best we can, our small self, years of practice, years of experience on the path within the shelter of the lineage in direct relationship with Lee, in direct relationship with Yogi Ram Kumar, or whoever anyone's teacher is, for those who might be listening to this as a podcast, we've gone through a lot. So how do we continue to embody, to really embody what it is that we've learned? This is an ongoing question. I'm going to open this up for discussion and questions in just a minute, but I want to shift to a Western myth. I want to talk about a different myth, and it's the myth of Isis and Osiris. This is Egyptian, of course, and we can find so many beautiful myths of the goddess. I mentioned the Celtic tradition earlier. In the Greek tradition, there's beautiful goddess myths, as some of you are very aware of Artemis, Demeter, Aphrodite. Athena, uh, so many different personifications of the divine feminine and how she plays with us to nurture us, to take care of us, to hold us in her arms as her children, speaking always symbolically, but it's true. And how she puts us through the processes of transformation because it's in life, in the body that we actually can transform. So she does all of this for us. She transforms us moment to moment through the breath, because she is the breath. She transforms us through sensuality and sexuality, through food and digestion, the gift of food, the gift of nourishment. She transforms us through birth and death. She transforms us through intoxication and even through love and war. She transforms us through our confusion. She transforms us in our feelings of grief and loss. She's present in all of this. So here's the story I want to share with you about Isis and Osiris. Of course, this is probably the most famous and for me, the greatest of the Egyptian myths. We're talking about a sacred culture that existed for a few thousand years. That's a long time when we think about our Western culture and how long it's been dominant on this earth. A few thousand years in Egypt is pretty significant. So Osiris and Isis were like the primary deities in the Egyptian tradition and a beloved, beloved, beloved of life. They're creator, creatrix deities. But Osiris is killed by his evil brother Set because as usual, here we are in this struggle between darkness and light, the balance between darkness and light because darkness is good also has its place in the scheme of things. It's a balance between these things. But we could say the struggle between ignorance and knowledge. So Set kills Osiris and puts his body in a tree, hides his body in a tree by a river, probably the Nile. And Isis is thrown into a state 
of profound grief and she's wandering the universe and everywhere all over the earth trying to find Osiris, her husband and consort. And she's desperate. She doesn't know how she can live without him. She's grieving deeply, sobbing and weeping. And while she's in the process of doing that, a king, a particular king, finds this beautiful, huge old cedar tree in which the body of Osiris has been placed by Set, his evil brother. And the king says, look at this incredible cedar, like the cedars of Lebanon. It's like 40 feet high. And, you know, I mean, these cedar trees are enormous and very impressive and venerable. So he cuts the cedar down because he wants to take it to his palace in his kingdom. And he wants to use it as one of the columns in the palace. And he does that. So Isis, in the meantime, realizes that this is what has happened, that Osiris's body is inside this incredible tree that's now being carved and made into a temple column, and that it's in this kingdom where this king and queen live. And so she goes there in her desperate search for Osiris, and she comes in the guise of a nursemaid. And so she goes to the queen and she gets employed. The queen takes her on as a nursemaid for the young prince. He's just a baby. And so Isis's job is to take care of the baby every day. And she's doing that and everything's going along fine. And at night, when the baby's asleep, Isis turns into a swallow and she flies around and around the column that has Osiris's body inside it. And she's keening and crying. And if you are a lover of swallows like me, especially in Europe and Montpellier and wonderful places like that, the swallows are so beautiful. So you really get a feel for what Isis is doing, this beautiful swooping, flying, graceful flight around and around the column with her keening, crying, beautiful cry of the swallow in her grief. But during the day, she takes the prince And there's a brazier in the middle of the big palace hall where the prince is living. And she takes him when there's no one else around. And she holds him over the fire and places the baby's body into the fire. So someone sees her doing this on the second day. And they run to the queen and they say, this nursemaid that you have is evil. She's no good. She's trying to kill the prince. And she's taking the baby and putting him in the fire of the brazier. The queen can't believe it. She's very upset. And so she peeks around the wall to watch and see what this nursemaid is doing. And sure enough, the nursemaid is just about to put the baby into the fire. And the queen comes running out and grabs the baby out of the fire and starts castigating the nursemaid. And she's furious. And she says, how dare you? How could you do such a thing to my son, the prince? And what happens in that moment is that the nursemaid is no longer there. And who is there is great Isis with her two wings, her beautiful wings outstretched in all of her glory and her radiance, shining like 40,000 suns, very similar to Durga and all the other great goddesses and all their glory and their omnipotence. And there she is. Of course, the queen immediately falls to her knees and says, oh, great mother Isis, forgive me, forgive me. I did not know it was you. And Isis says, if you had only had faith one more day in the fire and your son would have been given the gift of immortality, but you had no faith, you could not see reality. You could not see me for who I am. 
Of course, she was, you know, in disguise. Still, that's how gods and goddesses are. You could not see me. You could not see through my disguise. And so you interrupted the process. And now your son will be a kind and just ruler who has a long life, but he will not have immortality. And then the story goes on. But the next thing that happens is that the king realizes that it's Isis who's been there all along. And Isis explains, my husband Osiris, the great god Osiris, is captured, is imprisoned inside this column. And I've been trying to find him. And so they get Osiris out of the column. And Isis is able to bring him back to life because he's dead, at least enough so that his phallus can become alive. And they have union, and then the divine child, Horus, is born. But the way Isis brings him back to life is that she breathes on him. The breath of the goddess, and this is the grace and mercy of the goddess, just like being put in the fire was the grace and mercy of the goddess. So it's a beautiful story, and it says a lot to us about our times of when we are in the flames and the flames are getting to be too high and we feel like we can't bear it anymore. I'm going to stop there for just a moment and see if anyone has a comment or a question. So uh, I'm puzzled about these demons. What are they in our lives and where do they come from? What's their origin? Well, their origin, of course, is divine. Everything. There's only God. And we know this from the teaching. There's only God. So even the demons are here for a purpose. And it's easy to say the purpose of the demons is to help us awaken because we have to have a force to push back against so that consciousness can evolve and grow so that it can awaken. So they come from God. They come from the divine. They come from the field of oneness, the radiant light of oneness. And they are very troubling. They're very troubling here in duality. They're troubling out there for me. And I look at the world and I look at climate change and the incredible greed and the seeming, what can we do about all of this? Not very much in terms of say, the political, the forces that run this world, the forces of greed and ignorance, selfishness. But of course, what we can do is work with ourselves. So those demonic forces are at work. This is symbolic language. I'm not so keen on reifying the devil. They are forces that are at work within us, the forces of ignorance, the forces of sleep, the forces of selfishness the forces of aggression, whenever those are out of balance in us, we could say, I'm fighting my own demons now. So when we do that, when we fight our own demons, our own personal demons, or we work with them, we work to integrate them. My understanding is that you can kill the thing, but it's still part of you. The idea is to integrate these energies so we become aware of them and we can work consciously with them in ourselves that I know myself well enough to know where my demons are in me. Again, speaking symbolically, this is twilight language, language of myth and poem and dream, the language of the soul. Is there more? You want to say some more? So it's equivalent with the shadow, something like that. Yes. It's not an independent force. 
No, it's not an independent force. And the shadow, meaning that which we are not aware of in Jungian terms, the shadow is that which we don't know about ourselves. And sometimes that shadow is very dark. That's an easy way of describing it. Sometimes we just haven't grown to become aware of something, some energy that's trying to manifest through us, some divine energy that's trying to manifest. All archetypes are bipolar, not like as in the mental condition, not as in like bipolar disorder, but bipolar meaning that they have a positive end and a negative end. And so they express either through the self, through the most evolutionary life positive. We like that expression. Or they can manifest in a way that they are coming through twisted a little bit. There's a twist there and they come across shadowy. And then we look at it and we can even go, oh, that's evil. But if we understand that all of life, the purpose of everything, all of these forces is to move us Yogi Ramsrat Kumar talked about this as the totality, that everything is moving toward a totality of oneness, but it's an awakened oneness. It's not an unconscious oneness. It's awakened and it's aware of itself. And it's aware as an individual being, I'm aware of my place in the cosmos. I'm aware of my existence in relationship to the divine, my existence as one part of a whole of a oneness. I'm thinking a lot lately about these forces, the dark and the light. And I often wonder if the unconscious behavior, that's actually the darkness. So that the divine is actually another state of consciousness, like love, unconditional love or whatever. If humanity isn't waking up because it's so stuck in its habits, habitual behavior, it will continue to stay in that darkness instead of growing into a different consciousness and to a different dimension. I think it's on everybody's mind what's happening. Maybe not everybody, but many people's mind. And not only on our minds, it's on our hearts. I hear the cries of the earth. I hear the cries of the goddess. I hear the cries of humanity. And in my own self, how it strikes me and young people that I love dearly and all of the young people of the world and what they're up against that is pretty unimaginable for us because it was not that way when we were turning 16 and 20 and 25. So the forces of unconsciousness and darkness are definitely running amok. <laughs> Mahi Sathura is definitely running amok. How do we keep regenerating ourselves? How can we as older individuals set an example of having resilience in the face of this and having faith in the face of it? And really, that's not something that we can communicate so easily through language. Really, we communicate it with our lives, with how we live from day to day and how much kindness and generosity and how much just pure compassion we're able to bring to ourselves and others. This is the grace and mercy of the goddess. And the thing about using the darkness and the light as like unconsciousness and consciousness and all good and evil and all that is that the polarities break down at some point because darkness is also good. 
darkness is fecundating. Like the seed, if you're a gardener, you know that the seed will not sprout if it's not in darkness. This is a beautiful metaphor, and it's the truth, and it's the way life is. So there's a nurturing, healing, mysterious power of darkness that the goddess also represents. And even many of the gods, like Krishna, he's depicted as being black. He's called Sham, the blackness, the darkness, because he embodies this mystery of regeneration and of how it is that the light is born out of the darkness. And how beautiful this myth is depicted in the ancient Celtic tradition that's immortalized in every stone circle in the Celtic world across Europe, all over Scotland and Ireland and England. This return of the light, the light is born out of the darkness every year. So we need to remember this, that things aren't so simple when we talk about shadow. In Jung's teachings, there's a, a bright shadow. Jung has this word, telos, and he uses this word. He says that everything in life has a teleology. It's all moving toward the awakening of consciousness or the process of individuation, to use his language. So Yogi Ramsrakumar is saying the same thing when he says the totality, like everything in creation is evolving toward this point of awakening in relationship with its creator. So the darkness is a good thing too. And that's part of why Kali and Krishna are both black-skinned. It's not only the seed, that's a wonderful metaphor that we were just talking about. So there's the seed that sprouts in darkness. This is really important for us to be able to embrace this. And it leads us into a non-dual perspective because there isn't any enlightened duality without the non-dual realization or without the wisdom of having faith that there is oneness behind all of the play and all of the display of life, that everything is one. And that's true for us within each one of us. You know, I've been with Regina and some on my own as well, giving these workshops on memoir writing. And I'm still a very passionate writer. And my most recent book is called The Art of Contemplation. It's a really tiny little book and easy to read. And I wanted to write something that was uh, really accessible to people. It came to me during the pandemic when these kinds of issues that we're talking about now were so in my face, and I think in everybody's face, we could not escape the reality of what's going on on the planet Earth and in humanity. So back to my passion for writing, and I also write novels. I write historical fiction, among the other things that I've written. And one of the basic rules of creating a plot, what plot means in the ancient traditions, like Aristotle, who wrote at length on these theatrical and dramatic traditions, Plot is basically mythos. It's a myth. It is the basis of myth. So one of the most basic instructions to all writers is get your hero or your heroine into trouble and keep her there. That's how it happens. That's how consciousness gets born out of darkness. I love that because I definitely feel like I'm in trouble and I've been in trouble forever. 
<laughs> and I'll probably be in trouble forever because, you know, another thing that our teacher, our guru Lee used to say is there's no top end. There's no top end. It's not going to stop. We just reach a new level of responsibility in creation. We reach a new level of obligation. Let's see. I want to read something to you from Lee. This is a quote that I used in The Art of Contemplation, but I got it from this little book, Derisive Laughter. It's something that Lee said over 30 years ago. How desperately the human race and its continued existence needs real devotees. I realize it is more than a lot to ask of you this sacred way. I ask nonetheless. I am very anxious. I have seen the coming times. It is not only that you need God. It is that we need one another. Need. Not as even food or shelter but as deeply, more deeply than the very air we breathe. You must consider loving God in an organic, total way, or life has no meaning. I know this, heart, flesh, blood, and soul. I know this cellularly and chemically. And here's another quote from Lee. The process is feminine, and the keys to the lock which imprisons reality or truth is a feminine approach. We must go at this knot of confusion called the mind or sleep or unconsciousness or illusion or maya with a very gentle, humorous, patient, accepting relationship to it. We can practice vigorously, but with a bright and flexible vigor, not rigid, righteous vigor. We must give ourselves time to relax into this enlightenment, whatever it is, rather than trying to force it to take us over, permeate our fears and illusions, which of course it cannot do, although the mind in its incredible brilliance and sophistication can certainly pose as enlightened and put up a great facade. This is one of Lee's grand run-on sentences. Fooling not only ourselves, but the more naive amongst our acquaintances. Beyond the obvious, which is actually realizing that which we seek, if we approach the work as woman, we may just discover something quite unexpected and surprising, but no less delightful. So there's a good reason to invite the goddess into our lives and into our conscious awareness and to embrace her and to know that you are her. We are her. She is us. And to invite her grace and mercy and to realize that when the fire is too high and we can't bear it, that this is our moment when we're called to have faith and to throw ourselves at her feet, to throw ourselves at her feet is to take refuge in the Dharma in the path, in the guru, in the grace of the lineage. We don't know how things will be resolved. It's a mystery. We have to face that mystery. We have to go through it again and again and again. That's been my experience. I have to keep going through it. 
get your hero or heroine in trouble and keep her there. Well, okay, I'll tell another story. This is a personal story for me because I've been on pilgrimage to this location in southern France so many times now. And the first time I went with Lee, and that was to visit the deity, the Black Sarah. And some of you know her and have been there. So I've been there probably, I don't know, at least six times I've gone over the years to make pilgrimage to Saint-Marie de la Mer on the Mediterranean coast of France, where this deity, the Black Sarah, she's called Sarah Alcali, Sarah the Black where her image is enthroned in the crypt of a thousand-year-old Romanesque church in the village. The gypsies worship this deity. And once a year, they take her out of the church and make a long procession. Sometimes there's 100,000 or more, a few hundred thousand people in the procession following the body of this goddess to the sea. In the same way that in India, this is done with images of Durga and Kali and other goddesses. So the gypsies have their own relationship with her. But the Christian myth, because that's what she comes out of, is the Christian myth. The Christian myth is that after the death of Jesus, his wife and feminine counterpart, Mary Magdalene, had to go into exile because of the breakdown, the conflicts between the different disciples of Jesus and a certain faction among those disciples spurned Mary, the wife of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. And so she had to go into exile with Joseph of Arimathea and a number of other of the disciples, including Mary Salome and Mary Jacobi. Lots of women had the name Mary, M-A-R-I, Mary, because this was the name of the goddess in the ancient traditions of the Middle East. M-A-R-I is one of the most ancient names of the great goddess. So many women had this name in that era, and of course still today, but we've forgotten the underpinnings of it. It means star of the sea. And in some traditions, it's the bitter sea, because of course here in creation, we're dealing with Maya. And so Mary Magdalene had to go into exile with this small group of supporters and companions, and they arrived on the shore of southern France, just to the east of Montpellier at this place. And from there, they made their way inland. We don't really know for sure what they did. The lore, the legend is, is that Mary Magdalene ended up living in a cave on a high escarpment in one of the big massifs, the huge mountains in that area of southern France. And today, this is another pilgrimage place. I've been there as well. You can walk up the mountain. There's beautiful steps going up, 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 up the mountain to this ledge where there's a cave. It's quite large. It's really more like a very deep overhang. But I think that there is a cave that goes back into the mountain somewhere in the back of this place. And this is the place where Mary Magdalene went into solitude for seven years. And during that time, she became one with the Christ energy that Jesus had become one with as well. And so as the story goes, she continued to minister to people because she was a great healer like Jesus, 
And she also was, of course, this, you know, enlightened feminine wisdom being. And so she was able to leave the cave up on the highest apartment way up there and travel within the region to different places in her subtle body to heal people. So this is commemorated in this deity, the Sarah, the black Sarah, because she's considered to be the child of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. That when Mary Magdalene went into exile, she was pregnant shortly after the death of Jesus. So she's depicted as having black skin. She's very beautiful. You fall in love with her as soon as you know, walk into the church and down through the sanctuary of the church and then down the steps into the crypt. And there she is. It's very hot down there because there are usually a few hundred candles burning because so many supplicants, so many people have come with prayers begging for her grace and mercy. And all the walls of the crypt are lined with things like shoes and braces and canes and things like that from people who have come afflicted, who have been healed. And many, many, many plaques saying, thank you, merci. Thank you, the grace and mercy of the goddess, expressing the gratitude of those who have had prayers received, grace received, which sometimes shows up just as a GR, grace received. So she's very beautiful this Sarah. And she represents symbolically, she's the daughter of Jesus and Mary, as I was saying, but she symbolically represents this bloodline that Jesus and Mary were both part of, which is the bloodline of the house of King David in the Hebrew tradition. So it's a very big thing. But because she had to go underground, because she had to be hidden, this worship of the goddess through Mary the mother, Mary Magdalene, the the child of Jesus and Mary, she's depicted with black skin. But another way of, of course, understanding her black skin is that she is a Western counterpart to this great mystery that is the feminine, that is the feminine dimension of deity that the light comes through. So that's been one of my favorite pilgrimages. And I had a a real relationship with her during those years, and I still do. And two of the books that I was mentioning that I've written novels, I have two of them that are coming out soon. It's a series, it's a trilogy, and she plays a very major role in this, Mary Magdalene, and specifically Mary Magdalene. So it's a story that's near and dear to my heart. Another pilgrimage that I made with Lee was to Tarapith in Bengal. We were traveling in Bengal and hanging out with the bowls and having a powerful time, <laughs> um, a wonderful time, but, you know, wonderful times with our guru. They had many dimensions to them, so I could say it's a powerful time. And we were in Shantiniketan, which is one of the centers of the bowl culture in Bengal. And Lee called us together after dinner that evening and said, I'm leaving at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, and I'm not telling you where we're going. If you want to go be in the bus, there's like, I don't know, probably 50 people traveling with Lee, a big entourage. If you want to go, be in the bus. If you don't want to go, fine, you can stay here. I'm coming back here in three days, and I'll pick you back up. 
but don't be late. If you're not in the bus at eight o'clock, I'm leaving. And of course, a couple of people, you know, were like, well, but where are we going? And, you know, can you give us a clue and all of this? And he's like, no, it's a surprise. So everybody was on the bus at eight o'clock the next morning. And we drove for eight hours and we ended up in this place called Tarapith. And Tarapith is the home of this goddess called Smashan Tara. So she's one of the Mahavidyas, the 10 Mahavidyas who were forms of Kali. And she specifically is related to Kali or Durga's regenerative powers, her powers to regenerate, her powers of rebirth, her powers of resilience. And there's a big cremation ground there. And so we spent a lot of time at the cremation ground, hours. We were there overnight. We were there for two days. The smashan was fabulous, an incredible experience of you know, sitting and watching the bodies burn, of course, and all of the sadhus and yogis and wild characters. It's very, very theatrical place. But for me, the real highlight was having the darshan of this goddess. And there were thousands of people in line to see this goddess because we were traveling with a couple of Bengali people who said, well, we're going to do what upper class Bengali people do. We're going to go to the priests and we're going to give them some bakshish and we're going to rush you Westerners through the line so you don't have to stand in line for eight to 12 hours to get the darshan. So because of this, Lee said, I'm not going to go, but you all can go. I'm not going to go because I refuse to pay Bakshish to go see the goddess. And besides, it was pretty clear that he was already receiving her darshan. So he said, you all can go, but I'm not going to go. And most of us went, couldn't wait. Certainly for myself, I was like, oh, I'm so glad. So um we're in line. And fortunately, we only had to be in line for about an hour because of the bakshish, because we paid extra to get to go in. But during that hour, you're just pressed up against all the other people in the line. It's like, you know, a very chaotic, crazy, wild scene. And there's incense floating on the air and bells being rung and chanting going on. And people are doing pujas all over the place. And and you're being shoved and pushed and squeezed. And it's very, very intense, which is all good because it's all part of being prepared to receive the goddess's darshan. So finally, we get up to the little tiny doorway into this stone room, which is the Holy of Holies inside this very ancient old temple. And you get just literally almost pushed through that doorway. And then you're in this tiny space with the deity. and. There's different levels of darshan. There's the level of darshan of just seeing the form of the deity and the beaten gold or beaten silver mask that she has on and the big eyes that she's got and her lolling tongue, because these forms of Kali, she has a lolling tongue. Her tongue is hanging out, which represents her power. It's a symbol of power. So there's that level of seeing the goddess. 
and seeing the priests there and all of the RT lamps, the lights everywhere and the heat and the smoke and plumes of incense smoke and piles of prasad. And of course, I had my own prasad, which was a mala of marigolds and, and hibiscus flowers, which they sell all up and down the, the lane as you're walking toward the temple in the bazaar of Tarapis. So there's that level. There's all of the physical sensory input, the impressions of the physical space and the beauty of the physical space and the intensity of it and the darkness and the light in the darkness. And you're completely primed already from having stood in line and waited and been with everybody and the anticipation that's growing and the fervor that is floating on the air. But then there are other levels of her darshan. And for me, my experience of seeing her was a blast of bright power. Bright power meaning like a crore of suns, brighter than 40,000 suns. A blast of power and a blast of mercy and love. But not any kind of love that we can ascribe any sentimental value to because, you know, as Lee used to write so often in his prayer poems to Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, your love is a fire because, you know, this is what the goddess excels at is death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth, regeneration. And I remember having this instant thought come unbidden into my mind, which was, This is what the moment of death is. This is the mother light. The Tibetans, they describe the mother light at the moment of death. This incredibly bright light dawns. And if you're afraid of it, you can get very lost in the bardos. You go off into somewhere else. You avoid the light. But if you go into the light, then all things become possible because it's transformational. So this is the message of the goddess again and again and again to us. Be fearless. That doesn't mean have no fear. I've been listening to some podcasts. I find them to be very useful forms of study, which some of you have heard me say before on this podcast. I listen often when I'm walking during the day and I listen to very specific podcasts. And one of the ones that I listen to is from Sounds True and the platform is called Insights at the Edge. So I was listening to Tammy Simon interviewing this man who's written a book called Regeneration. His name is escaping me right at the moment. But the reason why this was important to me is because he's an ecologist and he is a Stanford-trained scientist. And so he's written this book about climate change and about the conditions on Earth at this time. He says a lot of people just feel like the game is over. Game over. It's done. We've ruined it. But he said he doesn't see it that way. From his perspective, it's game on. And that that is the attitude to bring, not that we sit and weep and wring our hands like this and talk about the misery and the desperation and the pain that we have, the suffering that we have about what's going on. That We have to maintain this attitude of game on, that anything is possible. And of course, he's got a lot of science he's putting behind that. There are things that can be done. And he says, we don't know what's going to happen. But even so, this attitude of game on, it's like 30 trillion cells in the human body that are regenerating themselves all the time. 
constantly right now as we're sitting here, our bodies are regenerating themselves. That this capacity for regeneration and resilience, it is who we are as human beings. It's built into creation. It's built into us at a cellular level. And this is what the goddess keeps telling us in all these different myths. Like, okay, it's going to get really rough. You're going to die. Something is going to die. But something has to die in order for something to be reborn. For something new to come in creation. There has to be a space. So this is what we can learn from embracing these myths, studying them, enjoying them, taking them to heart, letting the stories come to live in us because these stories are alive. As I was saying at the beginning of this, they're alive and they will work on us in a very mysterious way. Paul Hawken, that's his name, Paul Hawken and his book is Regeneration. But I loved the interview and I really deeply appreciated what he was saying. So at the individual level, this is the place where the work is. And it's always been that way on the spiritual path. There's always been some sorrow, always been suffering. But it's a particularly intense time right now on planet Earth. And so the opportunity to work with ourselves in terms of this kind of transformation, regeneration, of working with dark and light in ourselves, of working with what's unconscious in us and allowing that to come forth in a creative way of having faith, having faith in the process, having faith that there is a teleology, a meaningful intention behind everything that's happening. This is a huge contribution to humanity when we can take up this work and we do it on behalf of all beings because we need every single one of us to bring commitment and dedication and faith and the power of our beings, the gift of life to this situation that we find ourselves in. That's how it is for me. And that's what I need for me personally. That's how I'm taking refuge. Game on all the way. Whatever it is that I'm doing, game is on. My guru may have died 11 years ago. I may have been thrown into all kinds of transformational processes that have been pretty intense, but game on. That's what we do. And that is something that Lee communicated so brilliantly through his life and through his example. And he used to say, I'm not an example. And yet there is a place for seeing like how he persevered in his life and how he never wavered in his faith. He had his own style. He had his own take on things. He never wavered in his faith. He had certainty. And he really transmitted that grace is everywhere. It doesn't belong to any one path or tradition or lineage. It's the grace and mercy of the goddess. It's available everywhere to everybody. And yet when we participate in a lineage the guru principle becomes like a prism that grace has access through in a particular way. So grace and mercy in her wild hair, as Ram Prasad Sen wrote. It's almost time to end. Does anybody have anything they want to share? Um, I just want to say it was really wonderful hearing all these stories. 
And that it's marvelous that these stories have been appearing, I, I guess, forever. My experience of of listening to them and thinking about them is it sort of generates a sense of not knowing. You have to expand your, you have to drop your belief systems in a way um, because they're not really understandable in a sort of linear analog way to reach the depth and then you have to kind of suspend belief, I guess, which is a bit like meditating. Yes, just like meditation. It's about mystery and getting beyond the mind and getting beyond concept. That place where we don't know, it's such a rich place. So much can come from there. And it's hard to stay there. It's not easy to stay there because we've been trained from almost from birth or from birth to avoid that place, the place of the unknown. We don't know. The way that you described it, it reminded me of being in Arunachala Temple in Tiruvannamalai. Oh, yes. And that same mystery, the smell. I remember going in there. It was ecstatic, mysterious, wonderful. Mm. Yes. There's nothing like the temples of India. They're just unforgettable experience. There's such transmission happening in these places. Tonight, we're going to be singing to Saraswati. Because in that tradition where the three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, came together and made a supernova of their three Adi Shaktis, the first three days of Durga Navaratri, we sing to Saraswati, the consort of Brahma, the creator, the creation energy. The second three days, we sing to Lakshmi, the consort of Vishnu, the preserving energy. And the last three days, we sing to Durga and Kali, who is the personification of Shiva's power, the destroyer. So tonight, we'll be singing to Saraswati. I'd like to close with the chant to Chamunda, the fierce form of Durga. Just a short closing prayer in praising her. Chamundaye, 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 Kalavinashini, Kali JJ, Kalavinashini, Durga JJ, Radha Rukamini, Sita JJ. Radharukamini Sita JJ Chamundaye 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 Kalavinashini Kali JJ Kalavinashini Durga JJ Radha Rukamini Sita JJ Radha Rukamini Sita JJ Om Aim Hrim Klim Chamundai Vichy Swaha